we can let there we go and now it's official well thank thank you everyone for joining us today it's really great to to see those of you that are on camera and have joined us and it's great to see many names and phone numbers that have also joined us today so it's a it's a nice little turnout you never you never know during the the summer months who's going to dedicate some of their afternoon to sitting on a zoom call but uh, maybe the heat is just too much and people had to go inside and, and sit in the air conditioning, enjoy a little, a little coolness for a while. So, uh, thank you all for joining us. Just as a matter of housekeeping, if you have any questions, please try to send them to info at raccoongroup.com. It's the best place to reach us. Uh, you can also send an individual email to anyone on the team. Uh, we're all monitoring our emails and available to, to grab those questions and, and mix them into the meeting as, as they come in. Uh, with that, don't also, we're, we're supposed to say don't use the chat function. That's really the best way is to use the email if you have questions, unless you all are chatting with one another, which, which, which is all fine. Uh, if you see an old friend in the meeting here. With that, uh, what we want to do is we'll let Rob unmute here as well. Rob, you're muted if you want to say anything, but uh, we just want to kick off, and we thought today we would uh, allow people just to say if there were any subjects specifically on their mind. We always, you know, there's easy targets right now when we think about whether it's interest rate policy or uh, Ukraine and Russia, Europe, natural gas, or the markets, inflation, of course, is, is a big one, but we just wanted to open it up and see if people had any, any specific topics that they'd like to hear us talk about today. How are they going to tell us if they're all muted? They have the option that you will have to unmute yourself there if you'd we like go. to ask Some... for a topic. Um yeah, I know the housing market's beginning to change with the last increase of interest. And then next week, we're going to have another three-quarter point uh, increase in the Fed rate. Did we have any thoughts of, of – I, I think housing is beginning – prices are beginning to soften already. Do we have any thoughts about how far it may go or or what the greater impact could be across the country? Great. Okay. Thank you. Any any other questions or or topics anyone would like to have covered today? Inflation. I would yeah. love to hear Rob's inflation ideas. Thanks. Great. I'll I'll put that in the note too, specifically Rob's inflation ideas. <clears throat> As usual, I'm interested in cryptocurrency. All right, crypto. That's a good topic. Gary, I see you've unmuted. Do you have a question, Gary, or just testing your mute button? Oh. I was the one talking about cryptocurrency. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Great. I thought it was, I thought it was Chris. Funny. I muted myself again, so I wouldn't say anything I shouldn't. <laughs> Very good. Excellent idea. Great. Okay. Well, maybe we'll just, maybe we'll just dive in with that and, and please feel free to unmute yourself or send an email if you have questions. Uh, we really like participation from all of you. So maybe where where would you like to start, Rob? 
Well, since Gary is my elder brother and better in in all ways, maybe we'll start with cryptocurrency since it's rather rather uh, uh, fringed. The um, uh, 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 let's just see a show of hands. We'll reward people who are showing us their picture. Who's interested in cryptocurrency? Just raise your hand if you're if you we can see you and. I'll know the, the the extent of it. You can also do a hand raise even if you're not showing your and, photo. Great. Um, so, uh, you know, let's. It, it really brings up the inflation question because cryptocurrency, the main purpose of it is to be a hedge against inflation due to government printing of money. That is the that is the one basis of cryptocurrency in reality that there's a limited supply of it, like gold, uh, um, and and it's supposed to be not able to be devalued. But the what we've seen over the last year is that it actually has tracked the market, the stock market, and and been more volatile. Then, then uh, you know it act, it acts like a tech stock basically. So, um, and we're still in the very early stages of this idea of electronic currency. You know, in India, they've banned the use of cash. Really, India is a, a bar. You know, a prim, was primarily a barter system and a cash system because most people don't have access to it, and the government gained control and they they did away with the use of cash in the Indian economy and so you know cryptocurrencies are likely they they the the they're advertised as not being traceable uh not being you know able to be stolen or things like that all, all of that is is very questionable but um and so they have not performed the way that they were that they were supposed to perform now that being said, and uh, um, sorry to go on, please. Go ahead. Oh, I just say, I mean, I think the the overall goal is to have a currency that's not influenced by governments and government policies, right? And that that would include inflationary things such as printing money, right? It's right. as as the governments print money, it creates the inflation. But then the idea that you have a government, one central government, controlling your currency is what cryptocurrencies are trying to get around or at least bitcoin primarily but I and, think um, as we're talking we're, we're primarily discussing bitcoin and that's an excellent point there's so many cryptocurrencies i believe that bitcoin is likely and i may kyle disagrees is probably the main one to be concerned with um uh I think it has some features i met a bitcoin miner on july 4th someone who actually was buying machines and saying that they were going to mine it with renewable energy, which of course is one of the concerns about Bitcoin is its dependence, total dependence on, on large amounts of electricity and, and whatever that means. We can talk about that when we talk about green energy and electric cars and climate change and all of that, because it all ties in to cryptocurrencies. If we see that price range of 12 to 18,000 is 
there's a point where it becomes too inefficient or too costly to mine that doesn't necessarily set a bottom price for Bitcoin because Bitcoin can still transact and still can trade at lower levels regardless of whether or not people are mining. And so there there can become a point where it's inefficient for people to mine new Bitcoins, but that doesn't mean that that's necessarily a buy point because – because it can certainly go much lower as people are only transacting in the existing supply of, of the cryptocurrency. Right. And markets tend to overreact and, and go down further than they should. Can you clarify something? What do you mean by mine? My literal mine. And, and you earlier, Rob, you said something in relation to mining Bitcoin and with machines. And yes. So I went that direction and I'm now lost. What does Bitcoin What's that got to do with mining and machines? Good question, Barb. It's um, mining Bitcoin is the term they use for having computer computing power that solves mathematical equations and are verifiable. So it's not literal mining. It's electronic solving of long strings of mathematical problem. And they use the term mining to describe that computer power processing when we saw inflation when we saw turmoil between russia and ukraine you would have expected bitcoin to rise in value is what the kind of bitcoin people would have believed but what's happened is that the opposite has occurred is that as speculation has shifted in the markets as we've moved away from you know non-profitable tech companies or biotech or or whatever it is that's really pulled back in the markets, Bitcoin is also pulled back. And I think that's the key is that we found that when money was really cheap and easy, that it was a constant. There was a, a new cryptocurrency out there that was being driven up and there were just there are sort of multiple ways in which people were making money off of these cryptocurrencies. But it you know, much of it was really just sort of a scheme for people to make money quickly while other people got caught holding the bag. Now, cryptocurrency may be around for a really long time, but there's going to be winners. And it's likely, you know, right now that it's kind of shaking out that we're seeing the real winners in, you know, in Bitcoin, even though Bitcoin has gone from 60,000 to 20,000. Uh, we're really seeing that shake out as people move away from from real speculation in the cryptocurrency so, markets. Why don't we take the Bitcoin discussion and just talk about inflation uh, in yeah. general? Um, uh, because the housing market, uh, which Steve asked about, um, uh, you know, everyone's aware of how quickly home prices went up and, and some of that's ascribed to COVID uh, and the, and the change in demographics and desirability. But really, um the you know the place that everyone was fleeing which is manhattan uh uh has has reignited and the prices are as high as ever for apartments in manhattan so um real estate is is also seen as an inflation hedge as as crypto is supposed to have been and and uh 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 so the the phenomena of the of the Fed seeing widespread inflation and the cost of, of you know baby food, which we all buy a lot of in, in this group, and and uh, and gasoline and uh, 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 you know uh, 
the the general consumer index is up a lot. The price index eight eight percent or something uh, or or more. Uh, I know the cost ten, of living ten percent. Ten. Mm-hmm. Good. So um, the 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 causes of and the housing market, which everyone knows, is priced out young people, right? Very difficult unless you own a home to to get the down payment for a home if you're if you don't already have some assets um uh that 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 was becoming a real problem and so uh the fed not because of that but because of of, of widespread inflation there the the uh actually i think it's a different reason the fed stepped in to raise interest rates because the price of of serving the government debt i was shocked at at U.S. Treasury bills, the most liquid investment in the world, short-term U.S. Treasury bills, the highest quality, most liquid investments, the three-month U.S. Treasury bill is paying how much? Take a guess. Oh, come on. Kyle. 2.5%. Oh, my God. What a guy. How did I know that? Jeez. Uh 2.5%. 2.5%. Six months ago, a year ago, you couldn't earn 2.5% in a 10-year AAA corporate bond. You 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 would actually be lucky to get that on a double B bond. like So a low-rated junk bond, you would have been lucky to get 2.5% on a five-year basis. So if the government is paying more interest, they have got – they have got to crush – the expectation for people that inflation will continue because uh, uh, they have the ability to raise certain kinds of interest rates, but the government does not have the ability to control inflation. And that's a very important distinction. They can do whatever they want with the banking system, but if there, if there's wars and supply chain issues and labor shortages, um, they cannot do anything about certain types of inflation. So raising interest rates, which has indeed uh, uh, dampened the housing market. I won't say that housing prices have gone down, at least in the markets we follow, but they certainly are not going up. And if they're going up, they're going up very, very slowly. And sellers are having to negotiate now uh, uh, the price of, of, of real estate, uh, whereas before it was totally – um, a seller's market that that started to shift. So uh, the big question really is whether by raising uh, the financial system interest rates, which raises mortgage rates, which dampens real estate values somewhat, is will that translate into a slowdown in economic activity? And and if you follow the financial news, the question is. Will there be a recession? Are we in a recession? Is the Fed, who says they're willing to cause a, a recession, in order to dampen inflation, what they're saying is, in order to curtail the government's future interest costs, they're willing to do almost anything. And and for good reasons, mathematically, because I I uh, uh, I think I think the government's interest cost expense is going to exceed if it hasn't already the total cost annually of our total military budget it will exceed 
the total cost separately, not combined, the, the Medicare spending. In the entire spending of Medicare system is going to be less than the interest, the debt service, the interest expense to the government. Um, and, and it can go up a lot. I mean, if it does go up a lot, a lot of things will change. So they're very, very, they have a very good reason to raise rates now. Um, uh, I, who knows about the impact on the elections, but I'm, I'm not convinced that it will directly temper inflation. Yeah, that, there's that. Oh, I'm just saying there's a lot that's been said about the, the money supply. And then also the supply chain. So although we're raising interest rates, there still remains too much money in circulation in the money supply. And so it's one of the big things, right, where we had multiple rounds of, of stimulus that was put into the economy during COVID. And as that, as that money came out, it really increased the money supply. And so we have this huge amount of money in circulation. And so with all, I mean, the Fed's goal is to, you know, move that money out of circulation, but right now it remains in circulation and, and is a big cause of inflation. And then we also obviously have supply chain issues, which are created by a variety of factors, uh, from COVID and COVID related shutdowns around the world. But then you also have issues in Russia and Ukraine, which are leading to, you know, limitations on exports of agricultural goods or, or uh, oil or natural gas. The tariffs, uh, the Trump era mm-hmm. tariffs also, uh, c- contribute to supply chain issues, uh, because things were, are, are become artificially more expensive. And that's one of the things Biden is talking about doing away with are, are some of those, uh, uh, especially with, with, uh, with China, um, Yep. So although the Fed's raising rates, they can continue to try to raise rates and they've indicated, but without a real economic slowdown, they'll probably continue to raise rates to fight inflation, but it may not, you know, may not actually work to fight inflation until some of these other issues are resolved. Good. Uh, maybe we'll see whether there's anyone who's been, uh, um, inspired to ask a, a question of, uh, now that we've, we've digressed from Bitcoin to the Ukraine. What, what opportunities are created as a result of continued high inflation? If anything. Well, Think back to the 1970s. Um, you know, the there are some obvious opportunities for people in in uh, 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 industry, especially in the energy industry, who are making a ton of money. Uh, um, oil and gas revenue uh, is is substantially higher than it. It traditionally has been. So it's a, we have a, a, a government imposed restriction on, on oil and gas exploration, I would say. Um, and so, um, people that own certain kinds of assets, uh, uh, will benefit from the inflation 
in energy prices and the artificial curtailment of supply, you know, obviously that becomes, as they call it, the second war in Eastern Europe is about energy prices and energy, right? Everyone reads that, that, that Russia has weaponized their supply of, of, of natural gas to Europe and, um, you know, it's a, it's a pretty serious situation where, uh, countries have turned their back on, 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 and on, on natural gas. And now, um, they, they, they're, they have to figure out an alternative. And that Oh, I was just going to say there's, there's a, there's a big conversation around that. And actually, Najoni had been doing some, some research on it. Uh, for this call specifically, right, Najoni? Yeah, that's correct. Um, I had done some research on it. And of course, Rob does a, a great job of, of going into it already, but uh, just sort of those general ideas, it has been weaponized. Um, this last month, they had decreased the supply and then shut it off completely. Um, in terms of the Nord Stream, which is the main supply of natural gas to the EU that goes, it's like a under under the sea pipeline that comes in and it's like, over one-third of the natural gas for the EU. And so they cut that off completely and just turned it back on today, sort of citing maintenance concerns, but also saying that it was related to the, some of the Western sanctions. So the, the, it's, it's definitely sort of the, the Kremlin's putting some pressure to see if they can get more access to EU markets by sort of um, pushing on them with a, a natural resource that – the EU really doesn't have the ability to get from anywhere else in that volume at this point. And so a lot of, uh, I think mostly industrial companies are going to suffer the most if that were to be the case, if they, if there wasn't enough to get through the winter, because the, the priority would be households. Heating households during the winter time would be the priority and then industrial companies would kind of have to take that hit by decreasing production and things like that. And so, um, as Rob was talking about, a lot of these companies have started to make that shift towards more of a green structure, but that takes several years. And so the, the idea that they would be prepared by this winter, I mean, it's, it's a remote possibility at this point. Um, and so the EU has kind of thought of decreasing gas use, all sorts of things at this point to sort of uh, prepare for that possibility that they just won't have enough reserves to get through the winter and and uh, produce as much as is needed. And so we'll see that affect them economically for sure. And chemical, gas, steel companies, even pharmaceutical companies are really reliant on natural gas. And um, I think the pharmaceutical is, is very large, but of course those, those industrial areas that uh, supply a lot of jobs to these areas and they're a huge part of the GDP of the EU is that they'll suffer severely and it could, it could pull back by as much as, you know, one to 2% on the GDP, which doesn't sound like that much, but it is, is very significant. And, uh, thank you. Yeah, of course. What's happening with coal? Coal mining. I understand plants around the world are increasing now in coal to replace, uh, natural gas, fired electricity generation. Yes, that's correct. Um, I'm not sure what's happening with the coal price specifically. 
uh, a lot of these companies are shifting towards like a, a 50-50 model where they're trying to do at least 50% electricity and 50% natural gas, or they're putting um, coal burning sites directly on site so that they can use that as a more reliable source to sort of fall back on. Um, so I guess we would see probably more demand in that going into the winter if if Russia continues to sort of weaponize the the natural gas reserves so that they can't build up enough through the winter. We saw a big increase in China on nuclear also. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Nuclear, that's Rob's favorite topic. Yeah, I hope it gets here. <laughs> I think it will. This mm-hmm. can't be overnight. Yeah, it, it certainly, we actually started to see articles around nuclear energy start to pop back up in places like the Wall Street Journal, and you're starting to see that discussion come up again. Mm-hmm. Although, once again, it's one of those scenarios that it's it's sort of a, a, a long way out before you actually have a transition between whether it be coal or natural gas to a, to a nuclear energy source. It's a slower transition. Kyle, um, I have one comment and one question. The comment is Japan also, I think, is now increasing its uh, use of nuclear, or wants to. And the second question is, if it's not too technical, how does money actually get removed from the money supply? What what makes that happen? So... Uh, when they were expanding the money supply during COVID, especially, and for the 10 years, you know, starting with the great financial crack of, of 08, 09, they created additional government securities that, and, and sold them in the market to themselves and to banks. So, you know, what they, what they, and when those mature, they can just not reissue them. So that's what that it, it reduces the side, the Fed, which is its own bank and the treasury have kind of a deal with the commercial banks and they can, they can increase the volume of government securities because, you know, every couple of days or every weeks, there's a, an auction of treasury bills or notes or bonds uh, or age or government agency. And so, they can just, if, if they have, you know, two trillion maturing, they can only reissue, they can reissue one trillion and they've therefore reduced the amount of securities on the balance sheets of these banks. So it's not, it's not about taking money out of circulation from consumers. It's about taking the liquidity away from, from the different financial institutions, which which impacts their ability to lend and the interest that they earn and their profitability and eventually translates back into most importantly, consumer spending and sentiment, right? When the government is accommodative with low interest rates and creating more money, people feel positive that their wealth is going to go up. So they will pay more for a vacation house or they'll pay more for a stock. So it, it, it eventually translates back into investor psychology. So that's what, when they talk about quantitative easing, that's what you're referring to, Yes, right? that's exactly right. It's, 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 uh. This would be the opposite side of that. This would be trying to do like quantitative tightening. 
is what we read in one of the articles we had. And right. I mean, they and they they try to do it in other ways by you know raising the the bank reserve requirements. They try to remove money from you know from circulation amongst the the people. Right, is to to dampen spending by forcing the banks to lend less by upping their reserve requirements. Um, but eventually, I think it's eventually it gets to a rate which just doesn't make sense, right? Where the banks are holding on to too much cash and the government has to pay them for holding that cash. Good point. Yeah. So there's several mechanisms they have. If if you follow the news about China and you look at what their government slash bank slash industrial complex does, it's, 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 it's what they're changing all the time are the reserve requirements. Are they, they step in to, you know, let people off of their mortgages most recently with the protests in China about this rampant real estate speculation, which is, you know, would kind of make our jaws drop here in this country if we had, you know, a city full of big apartments that were like half done and, and they were, people were having to pay rent on their apartments that weren't finished. Um, so it's not just a U.S. problem. It's, it's really a, uh, uh, Europe, the European Central Bank today raised rates for the first time in 11 years. And, um, uh, you know, uh, we, we didn't, we didn't kind of, uh, talk about that, but immediately what you saw was the Italian bond market go to, SH blank T since we're being recorded that doesn't count as a as a demerit if I spell it out the Italian bond market because Italy's economy is super weak they have a tremendous amount of debt which has all been papered over by this quantitative easing of of the European bank for 10 years you just the Italian bonds pay the same almost as German bonds and the economy is not nearly as sound. And so the last thing they really want to do is raise interest rates because it will create stress in areas that, that, that are, you know, unpredictable, let's say. And, and, and that's starting to happen, which is, I think it's exciting. It was time. I think maybe it's a good place where we can talk a little bit about the strengthening of the currency, just because that's that's one of the impacts of the U.S. raising their rates is that as we've raised our rates, one of the ways in which we combat that arbitrage of foreign dollars flowing into U.S. treasuries is through a strengthening of the U.S. currency, where if you're converting your euros to U.S. dollars to invest here, uh, your money has to weaken. Otherwise, you can just you can make sort of endless money with your own currency. And so that's one of the ways in which the currency moves is that one, the U.S. has is in a is in a stronger economic place than Europe is, but also we have much higher interest rates. And so the European Central Bank raising their interest rates is one of the ways that they're trying to improve their currency weakening because. Because as you all may have seen, uh, we've seen the U.S. dollar go to parity with the with the euro, and that's something that hasn't happened since actually 2002. Uh, 
was the last time they were at parody, which is a, a fairly long time ago. Just to, parity means that one euro equals one U.S. dollar. That's what parity means. And so, yeah, when you log on to your Facebook, you might see all your friends on their European vacations. So it's it's a uh, it's very good for vacationers, but it it has it has strong implications for for the for the U.S. and for companies within the U.S. as well. Right, things things that we buy that we import from overseas become more. Uh, uh, it, it, actually, it, it's a it's a good thing for importers, but a bad thing for U.S. exporters. Is that right, Najoni? Yeah, that's okay. correct. Absolutely. And actually, Karen, uh, I think found some really good information about this. Um, I think Kyle commented on most of it. I think the other thing that Rob was talking about the U.S. debt service earlier. Uh, but the other impact of the um, strengthening of the dollar is that, for example, developing com- countries are having to pay more for their debt service to the U.S. They're also having to pay more for food, for gas. So there's a lot of, um, you know, there's a great struggle. Rob was uh, commenting on food scarcity and insecurity in Afghanistan, um, and that also has to do with sanctions from the U.S., but um the strength of the dollar, even though it's positive in some ways, it's also very negative in others for us, for major corporations like Boeing, who are, you know, a huge exporter uh, to the rest of the world. Um, and then again, companies who have U.S. companies who do a major part of their business overseas. Um, I think about 30 percent of their um, of their profits comes from their overseas business. Um, and then, um, the other thing that I was just going to comment on, Rob mentioned Chinese tariffs earlier and whether or not Biden will lift those. There was a former White House trade negotiator who, uh, said that from what he can see that it would only be about 10 billion of 360 billion in tariffs that might be lifted. So it would not necessarily be enough to move the needle in terms of inflation. Great. It's too bad. Good. Maybe we'll see. Are there other topics people would like to hear about? We can't go uh, uh, for a tea without Mark Romanelli asking something that would that would be too upsetting. So, Mark, please. We know that you have a question. Oh, my God. Well, yeah, maybe it's more of a confession. Um, You guys are just talking way over my head today. Maybe I haven't had enough coffee. Between the Bitcoin mining and the arbitrage of uh, currencies, I, I guess my my question would be, when is the damn market going back up? And I, and I, I will I, please respond. <laughs> yeah, well, well, obviously we we can't say for certainty where where the market when the market bottoms or, or when it goes back up for sure. I say that you know. Most, most of the analysts, you know, as they make their prediction, although we, we were talking earlier this week about the, the weakness in analyst predictions and, and how they're, they're rather inaccurate in their predictions, although that's what they get paid to do. They're sort of like weather, weather people of the, of the eighties or something where they, you know, held their finger out and predicted rain, I guess. Uh, 
but the 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 predictions are is that we would expect the market to be at a higher point to in six months from where we are today now would I say that with a strong amount of confidence or would I say that we won't have uh, a further down period between now and six months? I think that that's highly likely that, you know, although we've seen improvement in the stock market recently, that uh, I don't think that the market really understands quite what's happening yet. Uh, it was one of the things I actually, I actually highlighted a quote here just from an article where it was saying basically, you know, the, Investors are trying to figure out how much risk they want to take in the markets. They're trying to figure out how much should I be in the market and in the short term, right? Because all of us, we try to be long-term investors when it comes to the actual stock market, but we are trying to figure out how much risk we want to take in the short term. And really the economy and the Fed has given us very little information on which to determine our risk. They they give us signaling. They show signs about where the target Fed funds rate is going to be. But it's really, I think the market is trying to react on a lot of unknowns right now, unknowns around the world from from Russia and Ukraine. Like, when does that end or when does that slow down? When does COVID subside more and allow for, you know, fully functioning economies? And so I think that it's it's pretty hard to – you know, have an idea and really a lot of what's happening right now is a, is just a function of, of risk management for investors. Mm. Mm. And I think one of the things that we, we talk about, you know, as clients, I'm sure Mark, you've had the conversation when clients call in and have concerns about a down year or a down six months where we're at right now is certainly a long-term strategy and why we hold that and what that looks like. And, uh, one of the articles I was reading was, you know, I, I don't know if any of you as clients were seeing talk of the 60-40 portfolio going away, that diversification, 60 being, you know, it was a very traditional diversification, 60% to the market and 40% maybe to fixed income, leaving alternatives and things like that out of it. And the converse, the article was just speaking to if you were looking that, at that now because it's become part of the conversation again for advisors and investors that from 1926 to I think 2020 or 2021, the average annualized return was about 7%. If you look at 2019 to 2021, I'm pausing Mark so you can write. I see that. I did. Thank you. <laughs> if you look at 2019 to 2021, we've seen an annualized uh, return of 14.3%. And if the market overall was down about 12% this year, uh, end of year, we would still see annualized 7%. So just sort of that reminder of why we hold that long-term strategy. Um, and not, again, not everybody here, you know, 60-40 is not going to be right for every single investor. Um, that differs based on suitability, time horizon, all of those things. But just speaking to that long-term view. Yeah, we're we're experiencing a real reversion to the mean there. Thank you. Good. What else can we answer for people? Well, we usually talk about EV a little bit. Excellent. So that would be great. 
Who yeah. who who here owns a electric be- electric vehicle? I just had to replace my car and it was just too expensive. I just wish you meant the stock. I don't did, own an electric vehicle. Did you say that, Mark? You're, I'm you sorry, so the stock, I, but yeah, not, no, not the vehicle itself. Oh. Yeah. I think well, I think electric vehicles are really I mean, always a really fascinating topic. I guess it's not a T if we don't talk about them and sort of that revolution and change. Uh, I think, I mean, they're, they're greatly impacted by the global supply chain, right? Uh, I think they're, I actually, so I'll, I'll tell a story. My, my wife ordered a Tesla. Uh, she drives from El Dorado in Santa Fe to Pawaka every day, which is about, I think it's about 40 miles that she goes one way. And so she goes back and forth and the, the efficiency of having an electric vehicle make a big difference. But, uh, we started off with an initial, uh, estimate of getting it in August and we're now at December. And so we've seen some real issues, whether it be, uh, a variety of parts. Uh, I mean, obviously, Chip shortages are an issue, although right now they're predicting that we're going to have a glut of chips and and coming in. Actually, but I see Katie gave us a clap, but the problem is going to be actually that they're going to have too many chips come 2023 and that we're going to actually see an oversupply in our, our chips that we're going to move past the actual need and, and end up oversupplying the economy in chips, which is a, not necessarily the best thing. But um, so we... We see a lot with electric vehicles. It's just a matter of, you know, where did, where is the tipping point where it actually, uh, you know, where there's an actual shift, although all the car companies are moving into electric vehicles. But we know right now that there's going to be needed upgrades across the board to the electrical grid. With utility companies, uh, I was just in Dallas, and in, in Dallas they were not in the urban center, but in the surrounding areas of Dallas and DFW, they were worried about blackouts because it was 108 degrees and everyone had their air conditioners on full blast. And uh, as you all may know, Texas deregulated their utility companies, and it's created a lot of problems. Uh, but there's going to be a lot that needs to get solved as we get to mass adoption of electric vehicles. You have a question, Gary? Where I have a question. Where oh. does where uh, he's go- actually? Oh, God. Oh, he's trying to ask. He's just he's, muted. Gary, still. you're muted. Oh, good. Oh, Gary, oh, still muted. Sorry. There, there we, we go. go. The um, I think that part of the decision regarding an electric vehicle depends upon where you drive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very, very much so. And uh, there was a great article in the Wall Street Journal about someone who tried to do a, it was a Florida to Chicago trip and back, I believe, or it may have been Georgia to Chicago and back. And they just talk about the inefficient nature of recharging and really trying to have to plan out the trip. Now, for someone, someone like my wife, Tabitha, who, who is a commuter, it makes perfect sense to drive back and forth in comparison to the cost of gasoline. But for people that have to drive longer distances, it doesn't make sense. Uh, Elaine. Yes. I, I, 
I'm trying to find the little yellow hand, and I have no idea. How to <laughs> I saw your camera turn on, so I figured yeah. I, would, I would toss it to you quickly here. Yeah. Well, I, you and I have been talking a lot about solid-state batteries, and it mm-hmm. seems to me that the way to get into the electric car bat buzz is to figure out where are the solid-state batteries coming from first. And we, we've talked about this. You know, they, they go much further they're less toxic, they're, they take less time to charge. And I have been following a little bit, and Toyota says they're going to have a, a vehicle, a hybrid, with a solid-state battery by 2025. But I'm interested in trying to just find out the companies that are making the batteries. Because I feel like a solid-state battery is like a computer, being developed. I mean, it's going to be in demand. And I'm wondering if you could speak to that and whether you think that would be a good investment and a good thing to watch. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can't speak necessarily to the specific companies themselves on the, on the call here, but I know we've talked about it several times, but um, when we look at the battery technology is that there is a dire need for additional innovation when it comes to uh, battery technology and solid state batteries might be the answer. We look at everything from the idea of using electric trucking vehicles, which are, which are very heavy and, uh, and they require a lot of raw minerals to, to create those batteries. Uh, there's, there's a lot of innovation that just hasn't occurred yet. And it's sort of the, the push to electric vehicles is a little bit ahead of that innovation right now. And, and there's likely to be really strong investments in those areas. It's just a matter of how do you predict or find the right companies, most of which are probably uh, private companies at the point at this point, right? The companies making the greatest innovation are are likely companies that we can't that we're not going out to purchase. Which we see a lot with wind as well. I see. Kyle, are you saying that there are expensive minerals in the solid straight solid state batteries that make them impractical? I'm saying that all batteries require a certain amount of minerals, which uh, both make them not necessarily impractical, but they make them not as environmentally friendly as we would like. And then there's also required access to those. And the more that there's access, the more access needed is the more it will increase prices. It's just a, you know, as more batteries are being developed, you need more minerals, and that drives the prices of those minerals up often, unless you find a more efficient way of extracting them from the from the earth, or you you mine an asteroid. That would be the the next idea. Thanks. We actually just saw Congress pass a bill for the chip producers. I think it's actually called the Chips Bill. Uh, the chips bill and, and the goal is basically creating incentives for domestic manufacturers of semiconductors to build plants and increase production in the U.S. because there's big concerns about, you know, reliance on Taiwan for for the world's chips and trying to create that domestically. Uh, we had a question come in, Rob, just about the housing market, and I assume sort of the question would be, as we've seen, like the the housing market, you know come to a very high level and we're seeing interest rates rise, is there still, you know, do we still sort of see those like 
opportunities for, you know, really building strong passive income? Good question. I, you know, the, the cost of materials has gone up so much, the cost of construction, um, uh, and rents have gone up concurrently with the cost of building. Um, uh, it, it's, I'm not sure. Is there a specific question that, that you'd like addressed uh, about it or before I kind of meander off into the ether and answer the big macro questions? Maybe there's a more practical question that we should answer first. Is there, Kyle, a, a specific question? I'm seeing it looks like we're getting an unmute. Here we go. We've got an unmute. Chris, you're on the, on the line. Hi guys. This is Chris Wallen. Um, yeah, so my question is more so along the lines of like, right now everything seems so high, right? And, um, it can't stay that way. It's going to have to come down at some point in time. Um, and I guess, I guess that's like, do we see the future of where this is going to start coming down and then it's going to be a good time to buy back in? Uh, because like you said, with the price of materials, the, price of renting everything's so high that it's really hard to generate that passive uh, passive income yeah so there's no uh logical uh uh i I don't want to be technical there's no there's nothing that say that things can't go higher and stay high there there's absolutely no categorical reason why they have to come down like the stock market does not have to come down, even if it's overvalued. If you look at the price of housing in Europe, for example, where they have limited space to build and it's, it's difficult to, to, to build, the, the price of housing is, rel- is, is much higher than the U.S. relative to the income of the population. So you have a lot of long-term renters in Europe. We have more space we have more entrepreneurialism, and if we had materials, uh, uh, which which each each material from lumber to the industrial materials has its own story about whether it's produced domestically and what are the constraints on it, on its price uh, as well as labor. So um, there's nothing to say that the housing market has got to go down uh, uh, um, because we can't look back and try and predict the future based on what we've experienced in the past. That, that, that just is not true about any market. Um, people have difficulty building for various reasons. And um, the, the, the housing stock in the country is still not up to the demand for it. If people had the money to buy, there's still a lot of young people who live in rentals or with their parents or or who absolutely have to have their parents support to get into a house unless they're two income earn you know two wage earning uh a couple that both people are working uh, so it it's a, it's a problem um but there's no there's I, I don't think there's a a clear answer to the way things have to go in the future so what I'm hearing you say is that it's not necessarily the, a wrong time to buy into that um, investment strategy, 
but there isn't really an answer as to when would be the best time. Well, if you're saying if you're an investor and you're buying for a annualized rate of return, that's one thing. If you're buying to live in a home, that's another thing. If you're going to hold on to a property for 20 years and then, then it has a, a life value. And, uh, we had this discussion recently. I don't know if, uh, the folks are still on the call. I, I think they signed off. Uh, and, and they paid a lot of money for a house, as did my daughter recently, uh, uh, in Santa Fe. Um, but, if they stay there for 10 or 15 years, the, the annual cost versus the cost of renting with factoring in the potential appreciation, it, it just, it doesn't become a factor. So it goes back like the stock market discussion that Kyle and the group often have is what is your time horizon? Right. And why, you know, why, why are you, are, are you comfortable with owning things for five to 10 years through an economic cycle? Yeah. Um, I think when we look especially at, you know, passive income producing real estate, one of those issues is going to be flexibility. Right. And so with that is saying how large of a, a mortgage is on a property? How much debt are you having to cover in the event that rents go down? or tenants move out and you're dealing with vacancies. There's a, there's a variety of factors that you have to deal with. And it's, it's always impacted by your, your initial purchase price, but the market, you know, you may have five good years of high rents. And then as production occurs or as markets evolve, you're, you know, there's always the likelihood or possibility, not likelihood, but possibility that people markets change that, you know, Asheville is a hot market right now. Santa Fe, I mean, the prices are outrageous in Santa Fe right now. And uh, we can't say that it's going to stop or change any day. We just kind of, you have to be in a position where you're able to absorb and work through those kind of fluctuations in the market. It's it's just like an investment strategy is saying, like, you're going to have your stocks go up and down. And it's, you know, you just don't want to be in the position where you have to sell stocks when they're down. And there's a vast difference between residential and commercial real estate, depending on the location as well. So it's important to identify which market um, you're, you're trying to, to follow. You know, the, the big hedge funds and private equity funds have bought millions of single family dwellings for rental purpose. They are they have a huge appetite. And I think I saw BlackRock is raising the biggest real estate fund ever to buy more. So all the tract homes that you see on the south side of Santa Fe or, or, you know, cropping up wherever, wherever you might live, there's, there's tremendous momentum to build. And, and, you know, that's not all bad. It means that, that working people may be able to afford a $300,000 home because that's the target market that, that people are, are, are starting to build if they can find materials, uh, and labor to build them. So I, I don't think the real estate market is, is, uh, um, you know, doomed to go down a bunch by any means. 
um, in, the interest rates ha- is definitely curtailing sort of the speculative portion because when people borrow money, as Kyle intimated, if if you're borrowing money, you're just at the mercy of the interest rate market, and that's a bad place to be. And and the only time that we've gotten into trouble, which we have, was when we invested in projects that had a high degree of leverage of borrowing. So I don't know if anyone remembers. If you do, I'm going to say it here. If anyone has seen, there's a picture from like the 30s where you have one, sorry, he's a white old guy, smiling, and it says paid cash. And then next to it is a very sad white fat guy that says bought on credit. So that's a classic cartoon image that kind of tells the story of, 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 of a lot of uh, real estate investing. It's, it's why we don't, we don't, we don't buy on margin by and large for people. We just don't believe that people should speculate on, on, on any kind of long-term investments to, to any great degree. If anyone can find that cartoon, you get a bonus. Well, we'll find it. We've got Ooh. the people here to find it. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, with that, we're, we're pushing on an hour right now. Uh, maybe Contessa will go ahead and end the, the recording here. And with that, what, you know, we'll be on for a few minutes. The Raccoon Group is comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors LLC, an SEC registered investment advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities LLC, member FINRA, and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is neither indicative nor a guarantee of future results. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data or other information referenced herein is from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other data or information contained in this presentation is provided as general market commentary and does not constitute investment advice. The Raccoon Group and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates make no representations or warranties, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for statements or errors or omissions, or results obtained from the use of this information. The Raccoon Group and Hightower Advisors LLC assume no liability for any action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to this information. The information is provided as of the date referenced in this document. Such data and other information are subject to change without notice. This podcast was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed herein are solely those of the author, do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates.